0: And if you have a copy of God's word, I do invite you one last time to turn with me to the book of 1 Thessalonians. And we have been walking through this book for several months now, and we have finally come to the concluding remarks uh, by the authors. This morning in particular, we'll be looking at chapter 5, focusing our attention on verses 23 through 28. You know, we titled this series many months ago, Living in Light of Christ's Return. And what I believe we have learned, or at least what I have taken away, is that the best way to live in light of Christ's return is to seek to live a godly, sanctified life. Daily, hourly, moment by moment, seeking God in all things is the best way to prepare for God coming back. We're called to love one another, and we're called to seek to glorify with all that we say and all that we do. And what's so beautiful as we close out this book this morning, we will see that Paul and his companions practice what they have been taught, or what they teach, excuse me. They don't mention things and then not live them out. We will see them actually living out a lot of what they've taught us along the way. And that gives credibility to their message and encouragement to us. With that in mind, I do invite you to look with me at our text this morning as we hear from the Lord. The final section, 1 Thessalonians 5, I'll begin in verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. While the grass may wither and the flower may fall, the word of the Lord will stand forever. Let us go to him in prayer and ask his blessing on this time. Lord, if you do not sustain us, we will not make it. If you do not open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts this morning, we will not receive your word. And so we plea, O Lord, open us our eyes, our ears, our hearts. Help us to not only hear your word, but receive it with gladness. And may it transform our lives, turning us into your likeness, turning us into holy sons of the living King. Father, we thank you for this passage and the ministry of these men. We ask that you would use it now to be with us and to help us seek you more and more each day. We ask this all in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, all three writers of this book, began this letter with these words. We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope In our Lord Jesus Christ, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. It should not surprise us then to see here in the conclusion, in the last verses, the writers do the very thing they claim to do. They pray for the church. They started by saying, church, we pray for you, and they end by saying, church, we're praying for you. This creates this beautiful bookend, bookends to this letter. You know, living our lives as active examples of our beliefs, it tends to make us genuine in the eyes of the world. For it's very easy to proclaim something, say, on social media or publicly, but it's far different to say something and then live it out. Isn't the saying the easier of the two tasks? Doesn't that come a whole lot quicker? But then often we find ourselves having to walk our words back or, apologizing because we, we didn't really mean it like that. But people become more trustworthy when they're constantly being truthful and honest. Paul, Paul of all people understood this call to genuine living. Again and again, if you read his letters and you read in the book of Acts, he speaks of his shortcomings as well as his dependency upon the Lord daily to carry him through one who wrote 13 of the letters of the new testament and yet each and every day he's pleading lord give me enough for today lord give me enough for today i will not make it if you do not supply my needs here in this final section the writers get a chance to impart four final instructions on how to live a godly life and strengthen the church and it comes out of that sense of their understanding need they understand what it means to rely upon God to depend upon God to rest in God and so they part us with four last truths dear church if you are to be strong if you are to be faithful if you are to endure then listen to these things be blameless in spirit, soul, and body. Pray for one another. Fellowship together. Immerse yourself in God's word. And what's fascinating about each of these is that you've heard these before. This is not new information, is it? If you've been with us in this series, you know that these are topics we've not even covered once. Some of these we've covered two, if not three times. But it's that important. So let's take some time this morning and walk one last time through each of these, seeing how it will help us grow as people of God and as a church of God. We begin, be blameless in spirit, soul, and body. You know, Paul, Timothy, and Silas write this as a prayer. You can hear the words. You can, you can listen to it. You could pray this prayer. And it's directed to God on behalf of the people. There's been much discussion of prayer in this chapter. And if you are new to us, you will quickly surmise that this church likes to pray. And we do. We pray frequently and often. There's not more than, I think, two degrees of separation in any aspect of our service without prayer. Why? Because we recognize what the writer's. Recognize it's necessary. And we get this very sweet prayer here over the people, over this church, and it begins like this. Now, may the God of peace, peace, may the God of peace Peace, peace comes from knowledge, it comes from understanding, it can come from power or accepting things the way they are. It's a a reality that it's all going to be okay, that it's all going to work out, that it's playing out according to plan. It makes sense then that God is described as the God of peace. The seminary word or theological word we use for that is sovereignty. Sovereignty sovereignty. God has the ability and the knowledge to know what is right and then to carry out what is right, to determine what is good and then to make sure it is acted out in our lives and the lives of others. That would bring about a great deal of peace, wouldn't it? To know that you had the ability to say something and then carry it out or see it through, which leads to why a lot of people don't have peace in our world today. There's a lot of uncertainty, there's a lot of, I don't know, I don't understand, is this going to work out? But for us, and what we've seen all throughout this letter, is that we too can have peace when we surrender all of that with open hands to God. I don't know, but you do. I don't understand, but you do. I may not make it, but you will. When we shift our mindset, when we turn our attention and we look away from ourselves and toward God, there comes peace. And it is vital. It is vital to always live on edge, to always live in stress. It'll destroy us. And sadly, for many of us, we know that all too well. I will be the first to tell you, I'm well practiced in a lack of peace. And I know what that will do to one's life. But what does that God of peace do? Praying to the God of peace, we ask this. The God of peace himself sanctify you partially. No, sanctify you a little. No, what does it say? Sanctify you completely. Completely. Now, those of you that have been with us in this series, you hear that word sanctification and you perk up because I don't think I've done a sermon in this series without mentioning this phrase. Sanctification, the act in which we're made more and more like God, where more and more of this world is removed from us, we bend our will to God's will, we align our thoughts, our actions, our deeds to Him, which goes back to peace. Paul reminds us, That it's not only peace God provides, but it's also sanctification. And sanctification is a work. It's something that we play a part in. We do act in our sanctification. But don't miss what's being said here. Even the ability we have to do the work in order to grow in our obedience of God comes from God. We find that in this word. The God of peace himself sanctify you. Even the thing he's commanding you to do, he's giving you the power to do it. Even what he requires of you, he is supplying in your life. May God sanctify you so you will be sanctified before God. Now, doesn't that bring peace? Doesn't that bring relief? And it's not just partial. Paul does not ask for a little sanctification for the church. He asks for total sanctification completely, 100%, transformed their lives. And if that wasn't definitive enough, he continues, may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just as a reminder in Jewish literature, when spirit, soul, and body are used together, that means everything. There's nothing outside the scope of those realities. May every aspect of who you are and your very self, the core of your being, be kept blameless. May your body be sanctified so that you glorify God with every aspect of it. May your spirit be sanctified so that you seek to glorify God with every thought and every action. May your soul be sanctified so that you care not for sin, but only the wisdom and the love of the Savior. This prayer is asking that the people of God be kept blameless until the coming of the Savior. Now, we can be prone to being discouraged by this. We hear this and go, oh, Lord, that's a long time. That's a lot of work. I can't do it. You're going to have to do it, and that's just going to be a struggle Well, Paul understood that too. Because what does he say next? He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He will do it. Not might, not I believe so, not I think so. He will sanctify you. He will keep you blameless. He will transform your soul, your spirit, your body at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ we can have confidence that this will be so, that we will endure. You will make it to the finish line, dear Christian. This is not some empty statement or some promise made by my hands. It's from the Word of God, which means it's guaranteed. It will happen. The authors are giving the church certainty in God's promise. Remember, they're enduring great trials, great difficulty, great hardship And yet God is promising them, I will see you through this. To my end, now not to whatever end you see. We don't always know God's will for our life, but God will see them through. And as we look at this prayer to this church and we think about our situation today, we serve the same Savior. We worship the same God. God. And so our call, our challenge, what we should do in light of this prayer, in light of this passage, is accept it. Yield our life to it. Submit to it and have peace. I know that sounds like a terrible thing to ask of you. Have peace in your life. Be joyful. Be at rest with the decisions being made. No, it doesn't, does it? That sounds fantastic. That's very much... What Paul and his co-writers are asking, are praying over the people here, and they pray over us today. Now, how do we do that? How do we grow in our sanctification so that our soul, body, and spirit are blameless in the day of the Lord? Well, Paul and the writers now give us three ways in which we can carry that out. Look with me at verse 25 to find we pray for one another. prayer this has been a major theme in this book it's been a topic that we've come to again and again and he simply states it here brothers pray for us pray for us now that's interesting because typically paul tells the church to pray for one another to pray for other christians but here he's asking you church pray for us for paul for timothy for silas and if you dig into Paul's letters this is actually not uncommon you could look at romans 15 30 through 32 second corinthians 111 ephesians 6 19 and 20 philippians 119 colossians 4 3 through 4 and 18 second thessalonians 3 1 and 2 and philemon 22 all to see that paul is not afraid of asking for prayer in fact In almost every letter he wrote, he specifically goes out of his way at some point or another and says, pray for me, pray for us, for he knows he needs it. But I think it's more than that. I think he knows that the church needs to learn to give it. Prayer is like most activities that we engage in. The more we pray, the more we seek to speak with God and talk to God, the easier it becomes. And so how do we put this into practice? I believe we do it in two ways. One, we should become bold in our asking for prayer. I don't necessarily think we do a good job of this. I know in our American culture, we like to keep ourselves closed off, our individualistic nature we don't like opening up for fear of being vulnerable. But I believe one of the aspects of prayer is being willing to ask people to pray for you. You know, I've had a hard week. I've had a difficulty. I've got a neighbor, a friend, a coworker that's going through this. Would you pray for them? Would you pray for me? All it costs is time. But what you gain is far, far more important. Not just that, we can also be bold in praying for people. And, and some of us, I know we have good intentions, but if you're like me, when someone says, will you pray for me? The best thing to do is one of two things. Right then, right there, do it. You will never be caught. They say, pray for me. Okay, let's pray. You'll catch them off guard, but you will keep yourself honest or have a notebook in your pocket or on your phone, and they say, pray for me. You get it out right then and you write it down. Because what happens? We get in our car or we go down that next aisle or we start to think about what's next or what we're going to be doing or what's happening this week and we forget. It's not out of hatred. It's not out of spite. It's not like, I'm not praying for that person. But the the, the busyness of life consumes us and we find ourselves not when we said we did, which is dishonesty. And so... Be bold in your asking a prayer, but then also be bold in your praying. Whether that's immediately, directly, or writing it down, making a habit, making a journal. Some of you like to journal. That's a fantastic time to pray. That's a fantastic time to lift one another up. Whatever the case may be, we should seek to blanket one another with prayer. For this is one of the ways we can prove ourselves blameless before the Lord and at the coming of Christ. One last thing I do want to say on the topic of prayer and one of the great benefits to it, it forms a closeness between those who frequently engage in it together. How sweet it is to have someone pray on your behalf, how sweeter still it is to listen to someone talk to the God they love. The Lord greatly delights in the prayers of the saints. One thing I I miss about the church in the South is weekly you would have prayer meetings and this was not something that was optional they were really good at guilting you and going to church it was so part of the culture and the routine you went to prayer meeting in the week and I loved that opportunity to pray together to to be honest with one another to lift one another up it's something I'm very desirous of us beginning here when it's safe for us to do so but we can do that without meeting We can tell each other, hey, at this time, we're going to pray for these things. Can we all pray at our homes? Can we call one another? Can we socially distance in somebody's backyard? Prayer is so wonderful because it's free. It only costs time. That's all that it is. And yet the benefits, closeness to God, closeness to one another, transforming our lives into a life that God would have us to have and helping us suffer together. Oh, the benefits are great. And so one of the ways that we can be kept blameless in spirit, soul, and body before the Lord until Christ's coming is to pray together. But it doesn't end there. And closely tied to this is the call to fellowship together. Look with me at verse 26. Some of you have looked ahead and said, I don't know how he's going to make this connection. Well, hold on. I would say one of the greatest benefits to being a church is Fellowship. And I know for many of you, and for myself, that's been one of the hardest aspects of this time of quarantine. There's been a lacking of, of being around people, and fellowshipping together. And, and Paul makes this point here, and, and I will admit one of the more interesting verses of Scripture. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I'll give you a little bit of backstory. When I was in college, I served as an assistant to a mission trip to Columbia, South America. It was the first mission trip I ever went on. Um, I have a coffee machete in my office. If you ever go in there and you wonder what that kind of looks native ish, um, it's a coffee machete. And I'm so proud of that. I got it on that mission trip. And I loved my time in Columbia. We spent a month there um, serving uh, the communities I'm in the Cumberland Church doing VBS and ESL. And just, oh, it was so enlightening for me and in my personal walk with the Lord, with one exception. <laughs> See, I'm an American, and, and most Americans, we have this circle of comfort when it comes to people. It's about three and a half feet. It's, it, I'm right. There's math, science to that. Most people, unless you know them closely, about three and a half feet is as close as you want them to get for you until you become awkwardly uncomfortable. If you've ever spent time in any Hispanic cultures, they do not have a circle of influence or bubble at all. None. It doesn't exist. And worse than that, as soon as you are in the presence, especially of godly women, they're going to run up to you and they're going to kiss you twice just because the first one didn't count. I don't know why, but they're going to get both cheeks. You're going to get a kiss and a blessing. And oh, that plagued me. Going from church to church, it was oh no, another Sunday. We're going to do it again. And I did, I really did. For the longest time, I was like, wow, this is so great to do this if we could cut that part out. But do you know why they greet each other with the holy kiss, other than it's right here in scripture? It's because they treat fellow Christians like brothers and sisters. They really do believe what the Bible says, and that if you are in Christ then you're their family. And that's beyond just casual interaction, that's a closeness that you don't get anywhere else. And so they're going to do their best, and let me tell you something else, we have, I have rarely felt as loved as I did in on that mission trip by people I have never met and will probably never see again this side of heaven I felt loved by complete and total strangers why because they said you are closer than family to me you were a brother in Christ I will greet you as such I will treat you as such and I will make sure that you leave all the better for it now let me be very clear please don't start that here Please, please, please don't don't pick that up, especially during quarantine. Let's not. But can't we learn something from this on how to treat one another and interact with one another? You know, Paul and his co-writers, they're really challenging the church to treat one another with a level of familial likeness. Take fellow Christians in. Show them the kindness and hospitality you would your very own family. This is vital for us today as a church. When we recite the Apostles' Creed, we state we believe in the Holy Catholic Church. And even some of us still kind of get a little nervous with that that C word in there, but that just means universal. We believe in one church from all of history that God has been preserving and God will preserve. God is calling a people to himself, and we hold to that church. And those are our brothers and sisters in, in Christ. God is preserving for himself believers. Does that mean that we have to agree on absolutely everything and go along with absolutely everything they say or do? Well, let me ask you this, those of you that are not an only child. Is that how you treat your brothers or sisters? No, but we love them and we respect them and we care for them and we watch out for them and we make sure they know that the closeness you share with me is not like you can have in this world because it's deeper, it's purer, it's blameless because it's in Christ. And what's our basis for this? Pray. Fellowship together. And then when you're doing these things, what do we do? How do we do this? We see in our last point, immerse yourselves in God's word. Paul and his co-writers conclude this letter with very strong words indeed. He puts them under oath. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read all the brothers this is one of the strongest things that paul could have said i swear before god and call you to swear before god something we're not to do lightly in fact we're preferred not to do it at all read this and share it why well one of the reasons paul and his co-writers make this claim this is not merely a letter for just this church this is a letter for all churches This is part of God's word. This is scripture. Paul was not writing a letter to Thessalonica just to help the people of Thessalonica. No, and Paul knew that. Paul knew that this letter was from God and to the people of God, and so he challenges them, dare say, he charges them. You read this and you pass it along. It's not beneficial to some, it's beneficial to all. And I would take that language even further to say it is necessary for all. And it's with this we consider the importance of Scripture. Paul would certainly not just make this claim of his writing, but all of the sacred Scriptures. You know, we could really restate this this charge to something like this, and it would still be in line with what Paul is saying here. I charge you before God to read and consider all of God's Word as the people of God. We could find biblical warrant for a statement such as that, couldn't we? Be people of god's word study it consider it reflect upon it orient your lives around it how do we be blameless? or how can we be blameless in soul body and spirit by dedicating our lives to god's word how can we live in light of a returning savior by aligning our lives to god's word how can we live amidst conflict and strife and difficulty in this present, present age by clinging to God's word, every single word that has gone forth from the mouth of God and recorded for us in the Bible? It is here that we find our answer and it is here that we come to our conclusion. This word must be precious to us, dear brothers and sisters. This word must saturate our lives. This word must guide everything we think, we say, and we do by the grace of God. By the grace of God, lest we think we can do it on our own. The grace of our Lord Christ Jesus be with you. Jesus and his work on the cross has secured for us the grace needed to carry this out in our lives. Just as he did so for the church in Thessalonica, just as he has done for every Christian that has gone before us and every Christian that will go after us. God has provided what we need. And simply put, we need him. It's really what it comes down to. We need him. I hope that you have been challenged by this series as I have. You know, the church in Thessalonica faced many challenges in their day that we find similar parallel to. We would do well to consider the words of Paul, of Timothy, and Silas as we seek to grow both as individuals and as a faithful church. And note that God calls us to nothing short of blameless living in soul, body, and spirit. To pray for one another, to fellowship together, and to study God's word as the people of God. All of this is accomplished through the shed blood of Jesus Christ who died to purchase our freedom from bondage, slavery, and blindness. And so my final words to you, dear brothers and sisters, in this series is live like it. The title of it was How to Live in Light of Jesus' Return. Live like he's returning. Live like you serve a risen Savior. Live as if you truly believe he's returning and returning soon. Live as if God's grace and God's mercy and God's peace is enough for you today and every day in the highs, and the lows, in the valleys, as well as the peaks. For that is God's will and his promise for your life. Do not fear tomorrow, but take joy in today. And this promise, God's promise to sustain you until Christ returns again, is one he is guaranteed to deliver every day until he calls us all home. And that, my friends, is how we live for our coming Savior. Let us pray. O oh Lord our God, help us. We have heard your word. We have heard the truth found therein. And yet, many of us still find ourselves going, I don't know how, Lord. But you don't understand. Help us to realize you do understand. Help us to realize that Jesus, our great high priest and our king, endured all forms of temptation that he lived on this earth without sin and he gave up his life upon that cross his blood was poured and offered as a sacrifice so that his brothers and sisters might live and live is what he has called us to help us to do just that Lord give us the strength needed we cannot do it without your power send your spirit awaken our hearts Help us to do this together. We are not an island. We are called to fellowship, to prayer, and to holy living. Under your name and for your glory. We pray all of this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen.